Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Daniel Dombey. It's a report that makes one wonder what kind of world we're leaving to our children. 91 scientists convened by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change concluded this week that the Earth had warmed by one degree centigrade since pre-industrial times and was likely to heat up by a further two centigrade by the turn of this century. It gives a picture of forest fires, food shortages, coral reef deaths and much more awaiting the world unless major action is taken. But major action seems unlikely to be taken to the scale required. So what does this mean for the world? What does it mean for us and our children? I'm joined by Leslie Hook, the EFT's environment correspondent here in the studio, and by Ed Crooks, our US business editor, down the line from New York. Leslie, if I can start with you first, can you tell us in broad terms what exactly did the IPCC conclude and why does it matter? Thanks, Dan. Well, one of the key questions of the whole climate change conversation has always been how much will it matter if we get a little bit warmer or a lot warmer? And how should policymakers um, design policies accordingly? I mean, what does the planet look like at four degrees warmer, three degrees warmer, two degrees warmer? Um, And historically, one of the debates at the UN has been whether a two degree warming target or a 1.5 degree warming target is correct. So small island nations say we really need to aim for 1.5 degrees. If not, our whole country gets wiped out. Um, A lot of the biggest emitters and other developing countries say actually a two degrees of warming is fine. We can we can more or less live with that. So this report spells out in stark and alarming detail what's the difference between 1.5 degree of warming and two degrees of warming. And all of those are relative to pre-industrial times. So we've already come one degree uh, from pre-industrial times. Should we go an extra half a degree or an extra one degree? And uh, it finds that there is a a big difference. Uh, For example, 420 million additional people will be frequently exposed to heat waves at two degrees versus 1.5 degrees. 99% of coral reefs will die at two degrees versus only 75% at 1.5 degrees. Uh, We also see the number of people facing climate-induced water scarcity will double at 2 degrees versus 1.5 degrees. Um, So the conclusion of this report is that even that half a degree of warming makes a really big difference. Now, Ed, there is one government in particular that, to put it mildly, is not exactly convinced by all of this. Um, Donald Trump in the past has labelled climate change a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese, and his administration has pulled out, of course, of a Paris Accord. We all know that, but can you tell us a little bit more about the thinking behind the US industrial strategy and why they are where they are? Yes, that's right. I mean, as you say, um, the United States has signaled its intention to pull out of Paris, just to be absolutely clear about the legalities of it right now. Um, The US hasn't actually formally withdrawn, but as you say, the Trump administration has said it wants to. And it's the first country, in fact, that signed the Paris Accord back in 2015 that said it wants to do that. So that is a very significant step. And also, of course, the world's largest economy, or not not the world's largest uh, greenhouse gas emitter. In fact, that's China. Anyway, so but as you say, um, it's a very big deal then for the US to be doing this. 
And I certainly think there's a lot of um, uh, symbolism and a lot of politics for President Trump. I think um, when you think about his whole message, his whole pitch would make America great again. A lot of that was about turning back the clock to um, a period of 50 years ago when there were a lot more people employed in the US coal industry than there are today. And certainly um, the decline of the US coal industry was one of the things that um, President Trump uh, talked about a lot on the campaign trail. Um, of course, it's not very significant, really, to the US economy, in, certainly not in employment terms. There's about 52,000 people working coal mining in the US. Um, Walmart, the retail chain, by comparison, employs 1.5 million. So that, that one company alone employs uh, 30 times more people than the entire coal mining industry. But still, it's got that um, symbolic importance. In some rural communities where there's no, not many other sources of income, it is very important. And it also turns out to be the case that the coal industry is important in a couple of um, swing states, states that could go either Democratic or Republican. Um, coal is important in uh, parts of Pennsylvania, uh, sort of rural western Pennsylvania in particular. Pennsylvania is a, a swing state that's gone Democrat at, at times and Republican at other times. And also coal is very important in West Virginia, which has a Democratic senator, Joe Manchin, right now, but um, he's potentially vulnerable, could well go to the Republicans. And so a strong defence of the coal industry and the administration being seen to work for the coal industry in terms of regulatory policy, in terms of rejecting anything to do with climate action, um, that's something that could well help Republican candidates. Now, Leslie, uh, Ed's talked about the US resistance to action on climate change. But just to be clear, we've been set out the difference between what a 1.5 degree increase and a 2 degree increase. What does the world have to do to be on the right side of that ledger? What kind of actions are required to kind of shift the maths of this, to shift the climate science? Well, to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, which is sort of the the unstated recommendation of this whole report, would require a radical, unprecedented shift like nothing that um, the energy system has ever seen before. Uh, it would mean uh, cutting CO2 emissions by 45% by 2030, that's just 12 years from now, uh, and then going to net zero emissions around the world by 2050. So um, this would mean, you know, the end of coal, very limited natural gas, very limited oil, uh, and tremendous um, renewables, uh, hydro, uh, energy storage. I, I mean, it is a transformation that is... Um, I mean, the word impossible kind of comes to mind, although I hesitate to use it, but it, it would really require everyone to, um, you know, wake up tomorrow and, and just decide to go down a completely different path. Um, the, the, the report says that based on the current government commitments and based on the existing policies, um, the world is on track to hit about three degrees of warming um, by the end of the century. So that's sort of double, um, you know, the 1.5 level that is spelled out here as being the preferred scenario. So it's a little bit gloomy when you when you think about it like that. Right. So um, Leslie has made the hair on the back of our next prickle as she talks about uh, how we're heading towards um, three degrees increase by the end of the century. Ed, tell us a little bit about um, what US business and perhaps individual states and cities in the US are doing about climate change and um, cleaner technology. 
Well, if you're alarmed by that prospect of three degrees, I can possibly offer you a small amount of qualified optimism on that front. There are a couple of things going on. One is that um, US companies are um, very heavily investing in renewable energy and now increasingly in energy efficiency as well. Um, a lot of the time for uh, really just purely economic reasons. Certainly, a lot of companies, particularly, say, the big tech companies that use a lot of power in their um, servers and so on, they want to be seen to be being green, and so you'll see them uh, adopting renewable energy. But also, just because the costs of wind and solar power have fallen so sharply, um, they are now increasingly competitive against fossil fuel power. Um, gas is very competitive against coal, and gas has been squeezing out coal in the United States and now we're finding that renewables are also coming to squeeze out coal and uh, even gas uh, to an extent as well. So that's a clear trend that's uh, that's moving, and that is uh, definitely having an effect on US greenhouse gas emissions overall. The other thing that's going on is we are seeing a lot of states and cities rejecting the Trump administration's policy and saying they do still want to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there's a campaign it's called We Are Still In, which has got uh, 10 states in it and almost 300 cities and counties involved. And they say if you add up all of their commitments... Um, they are going to have uh, an effect. I mean, they're not going to get all the way to meeting the commitments that um, President Obama made uh, in Paris in 2015, but they will get a significant way towards that. And of course, they include a lot of the wealthiest states in the United States. They include California, above all, um, which is, um, what is it these days, the world's uh, sixth largest economy, I think. So um, that is having a significant effect, but it is not going to make up for the entirety of US policy being swung behind action on climate. And again, there is this worry that to the extent that things are um, economically driven rather than uh, committed to by policy, if the economics change, then um, the, uh, the, the direction of travel will change. And so it's possible that, for instance, if uh, the US power grid becomes saturated with uh, renewable energy, it can't really take any more renewable energy without uh, causing a lot of strain on the grid, then you'd see um, the rates of investment uh, start to go down and you, that movement towards renewables would, would slow down or stop. So there is definitely some issues there, but there is also some progress. Now, of course, uh, the world, although it may seem, it might not seem like that, sometimes the world is not entirely made up of the US administration and US business. Uh, there is a rest of the world out there. So, Leslie, in very rough terms, how is the rest of the world proceeding towards the Paris goals? And to what extent can they make up for the uh, non-participation or semi-participation of the US in the terms that uh, Ed has described? Well, the, with the U.S. preparing to pull out of the Paris Agreement, uh, the mantle has really fallen on Europe and China to set the direction of the sort of global policy debate. Uh, and at the uh, annual meeting, which takes place this year in December, I think everyone will be looking to the EU and to China to sort through some very difficult um technicalities to to get the next to take the next steps forward in implementing that agreement but we have seen some some quite strong commitments um the EU um wants to increase its carbon um, uh, reduction target so it's going to a more ambitious um uh, reduction target um up to 35% of a cut uh, china has pledged to peak its emissions in 2030 which um it still gives it time to um uh, to adjust um so that's kind of the the good news, um, 
bad news is that we now have um, a potentially another major country joining the U.S. In, in, in threatening to withdraw from Paris. In the Brazilian election, the front runner Bolsonaro has said that he would want to pull out of the Paris Agreement uh, and he wants to loosen controls on the deforestation in the Amazon. So that could potentially really increase the rate of deforestation there if he does come into power. So that's definitely one to keep an eye on. And Ed, it's um, it's uh, remarkable, isn't it, that uh, on the very same day that we got the IPCC report, uh, William Nordhaus, the economist, won um, as part of a joint prize, the Nobel Prize, um, given that the IPCC report relied so much on his work and on his theory about uh, green accounting and so on. Tell us a little bit about Nordhaus and uh, why this is an interesting uh, concurrence of events, if you could, Ed. Yes, it is a very nice coincidence, isn't it? Um, assuming it, it is a coincidence, possibly they, they knew about it and uh, uh, harmonised the uh, announcement for that day because it, it has uh, been very fitting that it's fallen out that way. The um, As you say, uh, William Nordhaus, his kind of crucial contribution really to economics and the thing that he was given the uh, prize for, that he shared the Nobel Prize this year for, was working on green accounting, so taking um, the environment, environmental issues uh, seriously in national accounts and in uh, economic modelling, and in particular in these uh, things called integrated assessment models. So this is working up a big um, uh, model, uh, big computer model, one of these uh, kind of large uh, macroeconomic models that looks at economic growth and its effect on emissions, and then in turn the effect of emissions on concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and then in turn on global temperatures. And that's a um, a methodology, a set of models that's used very, very um, uh, extensively by the IPCC, and it's something that um, really kind of has its um, intellectual origins in the work of William Nordhaus. Uh, it's interesting, he's a figure who's been... Uh, sometimes controversial. He's had his opponents, certainly in the environmental movement, because he's seen to be um, perhaps a bit too, what's the word, um, calm and moderate about uh, and possibly optimistic about um, climate action, the threat of climate change. And he's been seen as someone who uh, thought it was sensible to take um, action to address the threat in a kind of measured way. Um, he makes it pretty clear, though, that, uh, and certainly in his, in his most recent writings, I've had, I was just reading his book, The Climate Casino, which is an excellent primer on these kind of issues, on the economics of climate change. And uh, if you want a kind of beginner's guide, that's a really great place to start. Um, but he uh, makes two points very clear in that. One is he is absolutely saying that climate change is real, it is a genuine threat, and it is something we do need to take seriously. And two, he's saying the case for action rapidly um, is overwhelming. Uh, he doesn't think we've got lots of time to wait to see how it all turns out. He thinks that uh, governments and businesses in the whole world do need to start taking action right now to address that threat. And so I think, as I say, his, uh, his views are often sometimes... Uh, uh, misinterpreted or, or, or misstated by people, but definitely he is a strong advocate of doing something. And uh, and then I think that was um, I think that was probably also uh, one of the thoughts of the Nobel Committee's mind. Uh, or of course, it's the the Swedish Riksbank. Of course, I should make clear it's the the Swedish Central Bank that awards the prize. But anyway, um, it was one of the central thoughts in their mind when they gave him the prize this week. Thank you very much indeed for Ed from New York. Also, thanks to Leslie uh, here in London. Um, 
Whether something will be done um, as Nordhaus advocates and whether that something will be enough is something I guess we will all be watching in the years ahead. Until next week, however, that's it for now. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.